Jim Al-Khalili is a professor of physics at the University of Surrey. He's a fellow of the Royal Society and also one of the world's best known science communicators. He's presented numerous documentaries and hosts the acclaimed radio show, The Life Scientific, which by the way, deliberately interviews an equal amount of men and women scientists, which is great to see. His latest book, The World According to Physics, was published by Princeton University Press and is the focus of this interview. It's a great book because it's accessible for people who know absolutely nothing about physics or people that have studied physics, such as myself. So it's, it's accessible and deep. And topics range from the meaning of life to the chances of meeting extraterrestrials, the future of quantum computing and artificial intelligence, which Jim assures us will change the world more than the internet has. He also talks about AI-generated vaccines and how we can deal with pandemics. We'll also discuss why Stephen Hawking was wrong about the end of scientific progress and better understand the nature of reality, the dangers of politicizing science, what is science all about, and why enlightenment is better than ignorance. Join me for this fascinating interview. Jim Al-Khalili is a professor of physics at the University of Surrey. He's a fellow of the Royal Society. He has hosted numerous uh, television documentaries and uh, hosts the acclaimed uh, The Life Scientific radio show on BBC Radio 4. Actually, since it's International Women's Day, I should uh, highlight that uh, one of the great things about the show is that it deliberately interviews uh, an equal amount of uh, men and women, thereby uh, celebrating uh, female role models in science, which is great. So let's, first, let's give them a round of applause for that. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll take credit for my producers at the BBC who actually made sure that happens. I, I tend to forget and take credit where maybe it's not always due. But. No, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure being <laughs> way too humble. But yeah, and I saw that you tweeted actually you with your producer uh, five uh, recommended uh, episodes uh, of uh, women. Five inspirational women, yeah. yeah. Just today. So please do check that out. And then uh, if that's not enough, uh, Jim also recently uh, published his first uh, novel uh, last year, a science fiction uh, novel called Sunfall, and uh, it's recently been long-listed for the Waverton Goodreads Award, and is about to come out in paperback in two weeks. So I've already pre-ordered my copy, and I look forward to that. Um, Did we agree on an agent's fee? <laughs> <laughs> well, Santa, get a, an affiliate code. Well, I forgot to negotiate that. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's it's amazing to see how much how much he does. And I wasn't even sure where, where to start, because there's so many so many topics to cover, but let's see. I've actually made a few notes here. So let's see. First of all, radio, television, books, you know, events like this. And, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, you also still teach uh, and do research as well, yep. uh, which we will get to. How do you compare the different uh, mediums and the, and the cultural impact that, that they make? Obviously, not all academics are comfortable with you know, communicating their work to wider, the wider public, but it's something I've always enjoyed. For me, the, the, the academic work, the university duties that I have, research and teaching, that's the day job. So if, yep. if, if all else fails, that's, that's what I would return to. I doubt it would fail. <laughs> no, well, you know, one never knows. But I mean, I, I can't imagine not doing research. I've always felt that even though I like communicating science and I get as much pleasure in explaining ideas as I do learning about them for myself, I couldn't imagine not 
wanting to discover things for myself. It's not enough just to simply explain the work of others. I want to be, I want always want to be part of it, be in the mix. But the, the, the and, other and stuff. You, and you are a fellow of the, of the Royal Society and, and you're doing you know, great research. You've got graduate students working for you. I, I have, yes. I have five PhD students at the moment and then they, they keep me on my toes and they, they keep me from, uh, uh, you know, so they, they make sure that I, I have to keep, if not one step ahead of them, but at least sort of running to keep up with them, hmm. uh, which keeps things fresh. And, and I've always taught undergraduates. I've, I've taught every year consecutively since... 1992, so this is my 28th year without a sabbatical. I say, I've wow, never no had a, sabbatical? A, no sabbatical my because goodness. my life is a sabbatical. I sort of come and go as I please, so I sort of wow. feel I don't, I don't need to take time out. You, so I enjoy the university work. But I love then, what you do. I love what I do, but I'm, I'm lucky. And then I get the chance to do, to do the broadcasting work and the writing as well, fitting it in the gaps. Well, just out of curiosity, who here has... Uh, listened to or watched uh, any of Jim's work, uh, please raise your hands just to have an yeah. idea. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. Well, if you haven't, I highly recommend that you do. And, 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 and he really is one of, you know, one of the greatest uh, science communicators out there. Yeah, a real, a real inspiration. By the way, I should mention one of the great things about this book um, is it size? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, many things. Actually, how, you know what, what is the word count, by the way? It's about 50,000 words. So okay. it's... Uh... It's Which not, is, not, too not too much, but too you know, much. a decent chunk. Um, well, what's what's really great about it? I, I think it's extremely well written, and you don't have to know anything about physics to pick it up and read it. And you can even jump around between chapters. And if you have studied some physics, you will still find it very insightful. So I think you know you've done an amazing job at creating a book that really is accessible and deep at the same time. That's no small feat. So you know, the book covers topics. Uh, you know, from the expansion of the, the cosmos to defining life. Maybe let's start with just an interesting topic. Uh, you talk uh, a bit about how we can define life using mm. physics, and you bring in some thermodynamics, some a little bit. You just touched upon this a bit, but information theory, and you're doing research now in, in quantum biology, which is a new field. So maybe you can share yeah. a bit about that. It's, I, I'm always hesitant about, you know, physicists, explaining the meaning of life because we, we have a, a reputation of being rather arrogant in thinking that we can solve all the mysteries of the universe. Mm. Uh, certainly at the birth of quantum mechanics in the 1920s, a lot of the, the great you know, Heisenberg and Bohr and, 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 and Pauli, they felt that they'd solved all of physics and therefore all of chemistry <laughs> and that, that maybe these <laughs> biologists need a helping hand and, yeah. uh, and it turned out biologists didn't actually need a helping hand because genetics and molecular biology was developing at the same time. But it's still, for physicists, that fundamental question, which is, what is the difference between animate matter, life, and inanimate matter of equivalent complexity? You know, a, a recently deceased mouse, let's say, yep. <laughs> doesn't differ in complexity from a live mouse. Sure. They have the same sort of complicated structure. What is it about life, according to the laws of physics, that's different? And it is to do with being able to process information, be able to, it's what we physicists call a system far from equilibrium. Equilibrium is death. As equilibrium <laughs> is just everything's yeah. run down and unwound and, and, and messy. We, we say entropy is maximum. So life maintains low entropy, which means high order. But we still don't understand, it's all very well saying that, but we don't really <laughs> understand what is it? What is that right. magic difference between biology and, and just complicated chemistry? And so uh, one of the interest, exciting areas of research at the moment is this new area called quantum biology, which I'm involved in, I've been involved in for a few years now. It's still speculative. 
but it's the idea that there are mechanisms, phenomena inside living cells that we can only understand through applying the rules of quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is the theory of the, the very small, how atoms behave, how the particles within atoms behave. It's more than just, well, of course, life, we're all made of atoms, so at some point, quantum mechanics must play a role. It's more fundamental than that. It's, uh, there seems to be some trickery that go on inside living cells, the way enzymes behave and so on, that rely on the rules of quantum mechanics. So that's a... But, but this is all really cutting-edge stuff. It's very cutting-edge stuff. It's very, it, and, it, and it's still, to some extent, controversial, because physicists find biology messy and complicated. Yeah. Why would you want to go and delve into a biology when you can stay safely in your physics lab and tweak dials and sure. control everything? Biologists don't like quantum mechanics because there's lots of maths and come on, that'd be ridiculous, <laughs> you know. Mm. Uh, and chemists who, is, who sort of sit in the middle between the physicists and biologists wonder what all the fuss is about. You know, so, well, obviously, you know, quantum mechanics <laughs> plays a role. But, yeah. but it is, there is something, I think, exciting there. So I have PhD students and a research program at Surrey now looking in, just, you know, looking around and seeing what, what, what might be interesting to, to explore. So we'll, we'll see in the years to come. That's definitely a perennial question. So cracking that will be, you know, an amazing Yeah, well, you know, an amazing what, thing. what is the meaning of life? It's one of those simple <laughs> questions. <laughs> you, you do mention, actually, uh, Douglas Adams, right? 42, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yes, in the book, yes briefly. That, that's, it's the, the answer. It's the life, universe, and everything. That's right. That's right. Uh, actually, going back to this notion of life, and, and obviously, you know, the idea that, yeah, some, a system that can maintain low entropy. Mm. So... Do you think that, uh, that there, I mean, I know you've interviewed uh, like, uh, people from SETI and a lot of prominent mm. scientists. Do you, do you think that there is intelligent life out there in the universe? Uh, and, and might it be too far away for, from us to, to communicate with? Yeah, I think there's not consensus view among scientists, but I think we're coming to the conclusion that the universe is so vast. Just within our galaxies, there, there's several hundred billion stars Many of them, probably most of them, have, have planetary systems in orbit around them. Many of those planets will have the right conditions for life. We can't, and then not even in our galaxy, imagine all the billions and billions of all other galaxies. It's almost impossible to believe that life only exists on this one quite ordinary planet in this one quite ordinary system. And so chances are yes, but also chances are it's so far away or may have come and gone billions of in years time. ago yeah. in time, so that we will never make contact. The more interesting question, the more realistic question that we might be able to answer is whether, not whether intelligent life exists elsewhere, but, but whether life emerged in any form elsewhere. So it may well mm. be that um, there will be sort of fossilized evidence of life that once existed on Mars, or there may still be microbial life, single, you know, single cell life under the ice of on the moons of the of the gas giants Saturn and Jupiter. So even within our within our solar system, there may well be other life that emerged independently of life on Earth. And that's where the big excitement is because that's something we can actually go and explore and check, as opposed to waiting for little green men in flying saucers <laughs> to come and visit us or send us signals. Sure, which sure. I mean maybe less likely. Yeah, definitely. And obviously with, you know, meteorites and all that, it's very possible that life might have traveled, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it just seems inconceivable to me that this is the one place. I know lots of things had to be aligned and, and you know, yeah. for it to happen. But for, for this one planet among the trillions of worlds in the universe, this is the only place where life emerged. Because life emerged very quickly after Earth became habitable. So it, it couldn't be that hard. 
So why would it not happen elsewhere? Maybe the difficulty really is not for life to emerge. Maybe it's for complex, multicellular life and intelligent life. Maybe that's, that's a bit the, the, rare, the rare thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is very interesting. I mean, another concept in terms of going back to life, like what is alive? You know, you, you mentioned in the book uh, the idea of uh, quantum computing, which mm. is a field that's uh, being developed. We've mm. already, we've got very simple quantum quantum computers at the moment. Mm. Uh, I don't know, maybe like 64 bits or something, I'm not, qubits or whatever, yeah. whatever mm. they are. But you, you believe that by 2050, by mid-century, we'll have powerful quantum computers that will be able to run AI, artificial intelligence programs that uh, will be able to both make amazing discoveries in science, but also one also one question whether or not they would be alive, right? What, what does yeah, that mean? Yeah, I mean, and you don't need a quantum <laughs> computer for, to, to, to run AI. I mean, That's it's, right. uh, I think it's inevitable. I really believe that artificial intelligence is the next big revolution in humankind's development. And it's probably going to change the world more than the internet has. And we've had the internet for 30 years. Artificial intelligence isn't going to take another 30 years to have the equivalent impact. So it's coming. Yes, we have concerns as a society about whether we're ready for it or not. Sure. Uh, you know, worry about our data, worry about whether AI is going to take jobs. We worry about or whether... Terminator uh, scenario. Yeah, or, or, or indeed the singularity. <laughs> you know, when, when artificial intelligence becomes smarter than us and decides it doesn't need humans anymore. I think that's further in the future. <laughs> yes. There are more immediate problems. But at the same time, I think AI is going to be able to help humanity tackle a lot of the challenges that face us. I mean, you know, here we are. Haven't, a year ago, the word we did, did, people didn't want to mention was Brexit. Now it's coronavirus. You know, so that's the, we, maybe we should be talking about that. Pressing. But, yeah. but something like, you know, it could be that artificial intelligence algorithms will be capable of finding new vaccines and, and, and new antibiotics in a way that, you know, we are unable to because they, they can explore possibilities much more rapidly than we can. Quantum computers, of course, are, are going to be able to solve different kinds so, of problems. So, so, so why are quantum computers so important in well, AI or, or in making breakthroughs in physics? Well, I think uh, given that quantum mechanics is, this un underpins our reality, we're looking at quantum mechanics in biological systems now, to truly simulate what a quantum system is doing, you need a quantum computer. So a lot of chemists, for example, are very excited about quantum computers because they can run programs on them and model the real world where quantum mechanics plays a role. So they can solve problems that classical computers, the computers that we still have now, would be unable to do. But they're also going to be able to solve problems that, by problems, I mean mathematical problems, not problems that we need to, you know, in general language. But, um, for example, when we next hear, when we hear that quantum computers are really, that really have arrived, powerful ones, that's when we stop putting our credit card details sure. online. That's right. when you stop buying stuff from Amazon. <laughs> because quantum computers will be able to crack encryption the, the, the encryption codes, the, the public access encryption, where it basically involves multiplying two large numbers together and then factorizing those numbers. In fact, the factorizing is the hard bit. That's right. But a quantum computer could do that very easily. So we'd have to find other ways of encrypting our, our information online. Yeah. Wow. So it's interesting. I mean, first of all, the way you see the world, and you mentioned coronavirus, by the way, I want to say it's great to see everyone here, or most people. Uh, I know the event was completely sold out. Uh, it seems like some people didn't show up, but it's, you know, most people came and that, that's great. It's a testament also to uh, <laughs> the audience you're able to draw. So I think, I think that, that's fantastic. 
but also what's, what's interesting is, you know, as a scientist, you know, and you do mention this in the book, there's uh, the final chapter is entitled How to Think Like a Scientist. Mm. And you do highlight the idea of thinking rationally and not, you know, not being too afraid of things that we don't understand. Many ways, you know, that mm. reminiscent a bit of like Daniel Kahneman's uh, thesis, which won the, the Nobel Prize uh, in economics, mm. uh, which was about how, you know, we, we, we aren't rational, we over, overreact. Uh, so how can we get people to trust science more? I'm not, not, not talking about coronavirus mm. right now, but that's obviously yeah. that's a different thing. But uh, at least the message right now is not to panic. That's, but how, yeah, how can we get people to trust science more? I, it is difficult because these days, particularly with social media and the way we access information, you know, we hear a lot of terms like, you know, echo chambers and, and uh, mm. filter bubbles and, and groupthink. You know, we, we tend, we've always done this. We've always sort of mixed with people that we tend to agree with, people who have the yep. same worldview and same ideology as us. That's human nature. But it seems to have been amplified with the internet age. And what I'd like to see is whether we can apply some of the rational ideas of the scientific method, the way we do science, sort of wider public discourse. Because at the moment, people are, they will not entertain the possibility that they are in any way wrong in their views. Mm. And you get sort of the shouting, the polarization yep. uh, of views online, where each side, you know, they just assume it's black and white and there's no nuance. The, in, the world in, is in much the, more complex. The world is much more complex. And, you know, being prepared to examine why you think the way you do is very important in science. In science, you make mistakes and it's okay to make mistakes in a way that you know, a politician would never admit to so, because it's seen as a sign of weakness. So, so actually on that note, in that same chapter in the book, you actually uh, highlight a mistake that you made, uh, oh, yes. which uh, was uh, in one of the documentaries that, uh, where you developed an app that uh, was supposed to measure differences in time. Yeah. They were looking at between special relativity and, and general relativity. Could you share a bit about yes, that? Yes. And, 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 and just to say, just to explain, what's amazing about this is after having made a mistake before the documentary aired, you could have re-recorded it, but instead... Well, I was told, yes, I'd made, we'd made the mistake. Well, I'd made the mistake. And uh, in the way I'd explained something about Einstein's theory of relativity... You actually, tell, tell them, because I think it's a very interesting yeah. uh, theory and interesting so, example. So... so I, I'm sure you all know. Um, Einstein has two theories of relativity. His special theory in 1905, that's the E equals MC squared. Nothing goes faster than light. Time is the fourth dimension. That's the theory that made him famous. Ten years later, he, he, he developed that into a more grand theory called general relativity, in which he, he explained the, the force of gravity as the curvature of space-time. And both theories predict, and we now know this is true, it's not just a sort of a theoretical prediction, that time slows down under certain circumstances. So special relativity says that if you travel very fast, close to the speed of light, your time runs at a slower rate than it does relative to someone else. In general relativity, Einstein's theory explains that gravity can also slow time down. So the stronger the gravitational pull, the slower time runs. If my watch was running slow, I'd hold my arm up in the air, and it's now slightly further away from the center of the Earth, so it feels slightly weaker gravity, and I could speed it up. Obviously, I'd have to hold my arm in the air billions of years to make <laughs> yes. up one second. If I was that worried, I'd buy a new watch. Um, but it's true. The further away you are from the center of the Earth, or the weaker the gravitational 
field that you, you, you experience, the faster time can run because gravity slows it down. So we were I was explaining this in this BBC4 documentary called Gravity and Me, and we'd done all the filming and we developed this app, which relied on people's G uh, having their GPS location recorded and you can calculate how fast your, your time is running, down to sort of tiny, tiny fractions of a second. So it's not no big deal, but it was fun. And the idea was that if you put a clock at the North Pole, then it should run slower than a clock at the equator. Because, you know, the Earth is bulged out at the equator. So at the equator, you're further away from the center of the Earth than you are at the poles, by about 20 or so kilometers. And so being closer to the center of the Earth at the North Pole, the clock would feel slightly stronger gravity and therefore would run a bit slower. However, Einstein's special theory, the one about going very fast, slowing time down, would say, no, the clock at the equator is spinning. It's moving. And so its time would run slower relative to the clock on the pole. So which wins? Special relativity slowdown of time because of motion or general relativity slowdown of time because of gravity? And I've done the calculation and I worked out the gravity one wins and, and so on. And then we found it was weeks before the program was to air. I was due to go and record the voiceover a few days later. And my uh, exec producer, Paul Sen, called me up and he said he'd been on some physics forum where he, <laughs> which is always, you know, mistake. And, he, and he wasn't sure, did we, have we done the right thing? I said, let me look into it. And uh, I, I looked into it, contacted various people that uh, other physicists that I knew wouldn't, would know the answer as well. Turned out I had made this big mistake. Uh, so we told BBC, put, put a stop to the transmission. We have to go back and reshoot. And they said, okay, well, just reshoot the stuff and uh, no one be any wiser. And I said, no, actually, that, this is a really nice opportunity. It would be part of the drama of the story. We, we do all of that. And then I say, whoops, actually, uh, this, you know, I've made a mistake. Oh, no, Jim, I don't think we should do that. Well, we're worried about your reputation as a professor of physics. <laughs> I said, no, but that's how we do science. That's how, you know, if you didn't make mistakes, you wouldn't progress. You'd stick with the same theory forever. You have to show that this, the, our current ideas are wrong and, and improve them. So we won the argument, and, and we, we filmed a bit, uh, you know, we kept it, and we filmed a bit where I say, at this point, everything went a bit pear-shaped because I realized I'd made a big mistake. And, and it so the answer is that both clocks, the one at the equator and one at the North Pole, run at exactly the same rate. By definition, every clock on the, the surface of the Earth at sea level ticks at the same rate because that's why the Earth is the shape it is. When it first formed and it was hot and malleable, it spun round, the equator bulged out to ensure that every point on the surface felt the same gravitational potential. So by definition, they cancel each other out exactly. It's nice to be able to say, this is what we think, and then, I oh, know, actually, that's wrong. This is how we think. So I think, for me, that admitting your mistakes, hmm. being prepared to change your mind, your point of view, in the light of new evidence, which is the way science works. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people online or argue, actually, no, no, you've got a good yeah. point. Thank you. you know, and soften your view, because we don't see that now. You, you see people yeah. just, you know, so certain of their rights. Never mind evidence. You know, this is, this is you know, confirmation bias and yep. what's called cognitive dissonance, the idea that hearing evidence to the contrary to your viewpoint actually makes you uncomfortable. You dismiss it as being fake news, as being not important. And then the flimsiest of evidence in support of your view 
you elevate to something that, that <laughs> yeah. confirms what you already know and it makes you feel better. And, you know, if that's the way science works, you wouldn't have got very far. So mm. may, there are various lessons like this, I think, that will be useful to, to export more widely. Definitely. Um, yeah, it'd be great if politicians uh, <laughs> were a bit uh, yeah, more I, like I that. Yeah, I don't hold your but, breath. You know. No. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so admitting mistakes, uh, that's, that's mm. part of progress. And, and also this idea that self-doubt, not just doubt, because obviously it's, mm. it's very easy to, to doubt other people, but self-doubt is such an important characteristic of, of, yeah. being, of thinking think, like, yeah. like a scientist. I think, it was, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, uh, those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. Yeah. So, yeah, maintaining that. Yeah. Right? And, I, and in the book, I, make, I, the, the, I compare the, the way a scientists will think, you know, always having doubts, never being certain of what you, you know, always be prepared that you may be wrong. Compare it with, say, conspiracy theorists. Yes. You know, Which you do, you do yeah, touch upon because the conspiracy the theorists yeah. will say, "No, I'm also rational. I'm also, you know, um, a skeptic. Yeah. I also look for evidence." So my response is to a conspiracy theorist, whether it's you know aliens built the pyramids, or whether it's uh, we never went to the moon, or whether it's you know nine eleven truthers, or whatever. Ask them this: What would it take for you to change your mind? What piece of evidence would persuade you that you're wrong? And, and there isn't. And there isn't, by definition. Whereas in science, you know, you, you have to yeah. change your, your, it's your, be your mind. It's got falsifiable. It's got your, your, What you believe has to be falsifiable, and it's open there to be, to be knocked down. Your yeah. theory is only as good as, you know, the next one that comes along that, that is better, that improves on it, or the next piece of evidence or experiment that shows that it's wrong or deficient. Yeah. So, actually, on that note, uh, I know you've got, like, a, a brief... Uh, presentation to that can also show some of the contradictions in science today uh if yeah you could perhaps just so, briefly share that <laughs> because, because there are contradictions in physics at the we, moment. That, yeah no absolutely we have there's still many mysteries it's funny before we came on stage with the backstage said so do you want to check your slides jim that uh, that you sent us really i didn't realize i was going to show do it do a talk <laughs> and realize i had sent these powerpoint slides before we agreed to have an in-conversation. So anyway, so I, so I do have a, a, a few slides. Um, I'm but, sure people would but, love but to yeah, so, yeah. so, but Because for me, the book is... And we'll come back to the book. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the, the beauty of physics. But it's also not only how we know what we know, but what don't we know? What is there still to explore? And I get a bit polemical uh, now and again in the book and express my view. In fact, I think... <laughs> Now, uh, also, because I had these, these slides and because I knew we were chatting, I, I've deleted lots of slides that are not relevant, so I'm almost going to be as surprised as you as to what comes next. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So when I first started getting excited in phys uh, by, by physics, it was thought that we were coming to the end of theoretical physics. So this is an article by Stephen Hawking written in 81, and that first paragraph, he says, I want to discuss the possibility that the goal of theoretical physics might be achieved in the not-too-distant future by the end of the century. By this, I mean that we might have a complete, consistent, unified theory of the physical interactions. So basically, he's talking about a theory of everything. This, these sort of ideas of grand unified theories go back many years. Einstein, on his deathbed, was still trying to find a theory of everything. A unified theory would bring together all the laws of physics. The end of the 19th century, physicists thought they'd come to the end of you know, We had Newtonian mechanics, thermodynamics, electromagnetism. What else is there? And by the 1890s, we discover yeah. the electron, we discover X-rays, we discover radioactivity, and then quantum theory and Einstein come along, and you realize, whoa, there's so much we don't know. And here we are, a century later, still thinking we're coming to the end. <laughs> but actually, there are these still, there's mysteries, there's contradictions, there are 
things out there that we don't understand. So throughout my career in physics, there have been surprises, there have been discoveries. Two examples here. So the mm. discovery of the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider in 2012, and then more recently, the discovery of gravitational waves from colliding black holes. Both these discoveries made huge headlines. The Nobel Prizes were dished out, left, right, and center. And yet, neither of these were particularly unexpected. Mm. There were ticking boxes that where we'd already had theories making these predictions. Peter Higgs had predicted, and others had predicted, the existence of this particle, the Higgs boson, since the 1960s. Gravitational waves were predicted by Einstein's theory 100 years ago. And so, if anything, the biggest surprise in physics from the Large Hadron Collider is that we haven't discovered anything else since the Higgs boson. Mm. You know, we've $10 billion. That would be more interesting. That would be more interesting. In fact, yeah, a lot of physicists will say it is fascinating. It's just as interesting that we haven't found any new particles than, uh, as it would be had we found new particles, because it tells us something about the nature of the universe. The only true surprise, I think, in physics in recent decades was in 1998, mm. and that was the discovery of dark energy, which this is my way of, of, it's of still depicting a big problem. dark energy, this mysterious... So this is a, a <laughs> mysterious something a force of anti-gravity that's pushing the universe apart ever more rapidly. And we still don't completely understand it. We don't understand the nature of dark matter either. So, you know, what I talk about in the book is that, you know, if all our knowledge of how the physical universe works is an island, beyond its shores is sort of the great ocean of the unknown. We don't know how far it extends to. But it's exciting exploring the shoreline. What do we know? How do we know what we know now? And what is still out there yet to be discovered. The last thing I wanted to, oh, so, oh okay, so I depict, um, so for example, a theories of everything now, I depict it as the sort of a, a struggle, arm wrestle between two superheroes. On one side, you've got super string theory. That's one of the candidates for a theory of everything, which unifies the four forces of nature. On the other side, you've got something called loop quantum gravity, which quantizes Einstein's theory, quantizes space and time. We don't know if either of these is the correct theory of the universe, the correct theory of everything. They're both highly mathematical. But, you know, Stephen Hawking was wrong that we're getting to the end of physics. There's still so much, so much that we, we have yet to discover. And, and for me, that's what's really exciting because I always say it's a bit like anticipating you know, your birthday, you know, as a child, and you have all your birthday presents to unwrap. Before you've unwrapped the presents, there's that excitement of what they might be. Once you've unwrapped them, yes, okay, it's great. You see, the, but there's some, some of the magic has gone now because yeah. the mystery has gone. So it's, it's nice that there's stuff that we don't understand yet. It, not only does it keep us in a job, but uh, the sense of mystery, that, it's a mystery that can be solved, that can be explained by science, that's what's so exciting. Do you think, I mean, first of all, a grand unified theory, that's just one, you know, one step. That would be a big step. Yeah. But, do you think uh, that uh, it's something we'll achieve this, this century? I'm optimistic that yes, I think it is. But I don't think, I think it's going to be complicated. I think it's going to be, um, going to require a major rethink. We may have to have the help of artificial intelligence yeah. to solve that, that problem. But, I, but there must be a theory. I mean, the, the idea of the theory of everything is that, you know, we have these two, our biggest successes in physics. You've got Einstein's theory of relativity, which describes the whole universe, the theory of the very large, the whole cosmos. Then you have quantum mechanics, which is the theory of the very small. And you'd assume that, no, you know, you, why you, would you, you want... You, you've got that slide, maybe. Do you still have the slide with all the 
No, I, no, that, that okay. was one that, that, it's, it's that in the was book. lost. It's in the book. Yeah, it's, it's in the a book. great slide that shows all the branches of physics. And it was lost in the cull because it would require lots okay. of clicking. <laughs> but, but yes, how we bring together all these different ideas into one theory, we still believe it has to be possible. It may not be an equation you can wear on a T-shirt, but there, <laughs> there must yeah. be a way of explaining how to, you bring together the nature of space and time together with matter and energy down at the quantum scale. There must yeah. be something that describes reality at that scale. We just don't know what it is yet. Well, that brings me to the, the next question, actually. Reality. So from what I understand from the book, you believe in, in truth with a capital T and that it's not yeah. just about what we can observe and theories that can help us understand, but, but we were trying, you really, it's about also understanding what the world really is. So you believe there is an objective reality. Yes. We're, yeah. We're in in, that, in, in that, that, I side with Einstein. Um, That's yeah. So, so famously in the 1920s, the two giants of physics at the time were Einstein and Niels Bohr, the Danish father of quantum mechanics. And they both adopted very different philosophical views. So for Bohr, physics was about epistemology. It's, what we can say, what we can know about nature. Where Einstein believed in ontology, where he said that you know, we should try and explain how nature actually is, that there's an objective reality out there. As you say, there's a truth with a capital T. We may never reach it, but it's there, and we strive to get closer and closer to it as we develop our understanding of, of the way the universe works. And I think, I think that's true. And one of the examples is quantum mechanics itself. It's the most powerful, the most successful theory almost in the whole of science, certainly in physics. Without quantum mechanics, you wouldn't have your, your yeah. iPad, you know, we wouldn't have smartphone, wouldn't have any modern day electronics. So yeah. it's, it works and explains the world. But at its heart, we can't agree what it means. You know, the, the more counterintuitive aspects of quantum mechanics, how can an atom be in two places at once? What, what does that <laughs> even mean? Yes. And there are, you know, probably a dozen different ways of giving a narrative to that you know the equations the mathematics is very clear and it tells us if you do this calculation if you do this experiment this predicts that's what you will see and sure enough that's what you see probabilistically it, probabilistically indeed but it doesn't tell you how you know an atom gets from a to b when you're not looking yeah. and there must be a way of explaining it and for decades now physicists have been stuck in this idea that in the debate between einstein and bohr einstein lost and Bohr won, and therefore we shouldn't worry our pretty little heads over how nature does things down at the quantum scale. It works, our mathematical theory is correct, get on with it. Mm. If you're worried, go and do philosophy, right? We're <laughs> physicists. And I think it's, we're getting now to sort of, my, my generation, you know, sort of like you know, the third generation maybe from the founding fathers, where we're finally feeling we have the courage to say, now hang on a minute, isn't the job of physics to find out how nature is, how reality is, not just a way of calculating, making predictions, probabilistic predictions about the results of experiment. Yeah. That's an instrumentalist view. It's, a, it's an engineer. It's an engi yeah, and, but en in engineering in a way that's not insulting to engineers, but you know, an engineer sure. wants to take knowledge and put it to use and apply it. Absolutely, engineers are great. But a, a physicist, so a quantum physicist who wants to understand the deep underlying nature of reality should not be satisfied with that. So I think one of the interpretations of quantum mechanics is right and the others are wrong. It's not simply a matter of our own, you know, mm. today is, a, is, is what is today. <laughs> Sunday, and I believe in many worlds interpretation. Tomorrow is Monday, and I believe in the Copenhagen view. It shouldn't be about 
you know but, but what if we, but maybe but we don't know maybe we may never be able to find out we may never be able Just to like find out absolutely the theorem, right? yeah the, we, in, in, well there's nothing that says that we no no not in should physics. not we, right. we yeah in, in physics there's nothing that says we cannot find the right interpretation of quantum That's mechanics right. we haven't done so far that doesn't mean just because we have this embarrassment of different interpretations, different mm -hmm. narratives of what the maths means, doesn't mean nature doesn't, you know, either there are parallel worlds or there aren't. Yeah. Nature must well, do what, things what, one way. What do you think? Are there, in terms of quantum mechanics, are there parallel worlds in terms well, of how? Well, the, I mean, the, what, what, the fact what, is, once we start getting about what's your preferred interpretation, <laughs> then physicists start using words like I believe or I prefer yep. or I am fond of, yeah. because, but that's not science. So I'm agnostic about which is the correct cool. interpretation. I am not keen on the many worlds interpretation. And, well, you know, yeah, well, so I, I was on, um, and if people listen to the Infinite Monkey Cage, Brian Cox and Robin Ince. So I was a guest on a few weeks ago with an American physicist, um, Sean Carroll, uh, uh, who's a, a professor of physics at Caltech. And he's a huge advocate, fan of many worlds interpretation. In fact, he's written a wonderful book where he really goes to town. Should we just explain briefly what, the, what, the, what that means? Maybe? Okay, just, so just I just like... assumed the audience yeah. all knew exactly what the many worlds interpretation was. So, because quantum mechanics at its heart, it, there's, there's this strangeness, counterintuitiveness about you know, how can it be the way it is. We've developed various different ways of explaining this strangeness. And one of the ways was developed in the 1950s by a physicist by the name of Hugh Everett, which suggested that, so you, you all know the example of the cat in the box that's dead and alive at the same time. In fact, I'm, what, what are you doing here in the audience if you haven't heard of it? Erwin uh, <laughs> Schrodinger, one of the founders of, father of quantum mechanics in the 1930s, he was himself worried about the, the meaning of quantum mechanics. He came up with this thought experiment. He never actually put a cat in a box. Uh, but he said, if you were to put a cat in a box with some uh, radioactive poison that had a 50-50 chance of killing the cat when the lid was closed, within a space of one hour, then after one hour, you open the box, there's a 50% chance you'll find a dead cat, 50% chance you'll find a live cat. Fine, great, that's, that's, that's logical. But, he said, if the radioactive material was released according to the rules of quantum mechanics, after all, it's a subatomic particle that's spat out from an atom, then you, you can't say that it either has or hasn't. Until you've checked it, it both has been emitted and not emitted at the same time. This is the equivalent of particles being in two places at once. We know this happens in the quantum world. It's not just a theory. But, Schrodinger said, the fate of the cat is now tied to the fate of the radioactive atom. Therefore, the cat cannot be either dead or alive before you open the box. It must be in a what's called a superposition of both at the same time until you open the box. So one way of explaining that is to say that what the mass tells us is that the reason when you open the box you see a live cat or a dead cat, you never see both at the same time, is because at that moment of choice, the whole universe splits into two realities. In one reality, you find the, the live cat, but there's a parallel universe in which another you opens the box and finds the dead cat. I'm saying it, I'm, I, look, I don't want to make it sound like it's silly, but it does sound silly. But <laughs> so do all the other explanations of quantum mechanics, because quantum mechanics really is, when, when you dig into it, this is why a lot of physicists don't, don't want to do the philosophy. They just want to use the maths mm. because it works. And I don't want to just do that because it works. I want to be able to find out. Yeah. So Sean Carroll said the many was interpretation must be that it's the most beautiful, it's the most elegant, it's the simplest interpretation of quantum mechanics. 
And one of my counter arguments was that just because it's simple mm. doesn't mean it's the correct okay, interpretation. Okay, doesn't always apply. doesn't always work. If you if you wanted to, was the simplest explanation for the weirdness of quantum mechanics, God made it that way, right? Mm. Fine. So that's that. So simplicity isn't always truth, and I think physicists have been infected with that idea as well because we've had mm. a lot of success. Sure. That we, we we've seen beauty in our mathematical equations, and that has led us to a truth about the physical universe, about reality. But that doesn't mean always, whenever you see beauty in your equations, that therefore yeah. that's how the world actually is. And you, you do give a good example in the book. Well, you touch upon the idea of some physics that's so esoteric where some physicists aren't actually interested in finding ways to measure and test their, right. their, their equations because yeah. they think they're so, they're so in love with their beauty. Yeah, and that's dangerous. That's going too far. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, you do, you've got this wonderful metaphor of this idea of if you lose your keys... You know, you could search for the keys where there's light, where the lampposts are, or, or in the dark. If, if you're walking along, say, on an evening, and yes. you've realized the keys have fallen from your pocket somewhere along the pavement, right, yes. So, so you can search in both places, but, but you say it's actually, it's important for us to also search in the dark. But, but maybe we once shouldn't go too far, but we should still do things that are hard. Yes. Are you, are you a lamppost physicist or not? I'm, I, I, I'm probably in between. Both extremes are wrong. I mean, so the lamppost physicists are those who will only try and study aspects of the world that they can test experimentally immediately. So that's equivalent yeah. to only looking... Which is obviously uh, not you. Yeah, only looking for the, you know, the, uh, under the light of the lamppost, look for your keys there. Where it's much more likely they'd have fallen out of your pocket in the sort of larger, sort of darker patches between the lampposts. But then there are the very mathematical physicists, you know, who are working on cosmology or string theory, for example, where we simply don't have any way at the mm. moment of testing those ideas. At the moment, they're just pretty maths. So those are the searchers in the dark. They are quite happy coming up with beautiful equations, comparing them with other beautiful equations, without really worrying too much about whether that is how the world really is. I think that's important, mm. but I do still think physics is an empirical science. It, you know, A theory isn't really a scientific theory unless it's falsifiable unless you know you can find an experiment that will test its metal and so i'm not sure where that puts me do i search no, in the no, dark no. or under the lamp well, obviously post? both Some, oh, somewhere where there's a little bit of light <laughs> but, uh, but yeah there was just some joke about string theorists uh not exactly a joke but the idea that some of them don't even remember how to calculate the the frequency of an oscillating string they're so detached from reality yes <laughs> uh, uh, yes yeah, so, yeah, so string theory has so, come under some uh, bit of criticism in, in recent years yeah, because it has two different things that's why that's, that's kind yeah, of funny by the way yeah but, yes. but it, ha it hasn't um, lived up to sort of the early mm. uh, hopes that it would be a theory of everything before we we open up to questions actually uh Another thing I wanted to ask, you, you do touch upon uh, conspiracy theories, which we already mentioned, but certainly climate change, man-made climate change, is not mm. a conspiracy theory. You, and you mentioned, obviously, no. that, that, you know, <laughs> that's, happening. that's a very serious thing. And, and so, you know, as someone who believes in the scientific consensus, uh, mm. which, by the way, includes, you mentioned in the book, uh, you know, you believe in, in vaccines, you're not, you know, despite, you know, the, the, the benefit of vaccines, you're, you don't mention in the, in the book, but I understand you're not afraid of... Uh, radiation from cell phone towers, for example, you, yeah. you do trust science, but you are very concerned about that. That's part of science mm. because there is you know, a lot of science around studying climate change and, and there is a consensus. What do you think the, you know, the future holds for our children? And, and yeah, and is it as bleak as, you know, what, what, do you, what do you make of Extinction Rebellion, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think Extinction Rebellion and certainly the whole movement was absolutely necessary 
to shake us from our complacency. You know, you can argue whether, you know, going to schools and scaring kids that, you know, the end of the world is nigh and you're not, you're not going to live to old age because that's has, has all a religious doomed. fervor to it, it, it. To some extent, yes. But maybe not the children, but certainly the grown-ups need to be scared, need to be told that you have to do something because we, we're sleepwalking. We're seeing the effects of the climate changing more and more rapidly. We're constantly hearing that it's worse than we thought. The, the ice in uh, the Antarctic and Arctic is melting even more quickly. We're starting to see the, mm. the extremes of weather, you know, whether it's droughts or, you know, bushfires or, or, or storms that are stronger than before. All of, any one of them by itself is not evidence of climate change, but together it is happening. I'm still a glass half full person, and I'm still someone who believes that science is not good or bad. Science is, you know, knowledge and enlightenment is always better than ignorance. It's how we put it to use. And I still sort of have faith in humanity. I'm a humanist. So yeah. I, I sort of I see probably, you know, the positive side of humanity more than the negative. Sometimes it can be hard. But I still feel that we're, we're going to come to our senses. It would be nice if we'd come to our senses mm. two or three decades ago and done something. Sure. But I think when push comes to shove, we will have to do what is necessary. And we're starting to see that. I mean, so, in, so it's about uh, getting governments to, to act. Getting government, yeah. So, I mean, it, it's not enough. It's absolutely not enough for Extinction Rebellion to be going out <laughs> and, and sticking themselves to, yeah. to, to buses and trains that's enough to raise awareness yeah. but that doesn't solve the problem yeah. the problem has to be solved by governments it has to be solved by multinational companies i had a, a guest on life scientific a few weeks ago miles allen who is a climatologist who says that really what you want to he's he was one of he was the lead author on, on an ipcc report that uh, first advocated for zero carbon yep. so it's not about you know getting up to 400 or above parts per million of carbon sure. dioxide in the atmosphere it's about you know whatever you pump into the atmosphere, you, sh you should also remove again. And the fossil fuel industry, in his view, ultimately going to have to be responsible for cleaning up our atmosphere and reversing climate change. The nuclear industry would never be able to get away with saying, well, we're going to build this new nuclear power plant. We're going to create those radioactive wastes, but, uh, you know, well, yeah. we'll deal with that w whenever. No, they have to build in from the start. If you're going to create a mess, you're going to create something that's toxic, that's dangerous, that's hazardous, you have to solve that problem. The fossil fuel industry somehow mm. have got away with it. Yeah. They haven't had to worry about if they're pumping carbon into, into the atmosphere from the fossil fuel, then you have to capture it again. And I think the technology is there, but we need the political will and, and the, the, the will of those multinational companies. Someone, you know, I'm waiting to see someone who's going who's to blink first and hopefully others will mm. follow suit. But... You're I'm still, still, you're still an optimist. I'm still an optimist that uh, that we can we, mitigate we'll, we'll mitigate scenarios. worst case scenarios. I don't yeah. think we're gonna we're we're not gonna be able to solve it. I think it's too late now to really undo all the damage that climate change has done. But at least we're not going to be hopefully going back and living in caves. Mm. Well, <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's open up to the audience. So we've got we've got microphones, so please wait uh, for someone to bring the microphone to you. Thank you very much. My, my question is about, I've uh, been reading about the hard problem of consciousness mm. and your views, whether you, you know, on consciousness or whether you're a materialist or what is the nature of the existence of consciousness, really, something I'm really curious about. Yeah, I mean, 
it's not my specialism, but if uh, my view is that I believe in uh, what's called strong AI, that uh, I think consciousness isn't magic. It's whether or not it's computable, it's, it's software of some form, neural nets running in our brains. I don't think our brains are sort of complicated organs and you sprinkle pixie dust and, uh, on it and bring about consciousness. It must be understandable within laws of physics and chemistry. If I say whose view I, I align with, probably someone like the philosopher Daniel Dennett, maybe because I was completely inspired by the book he wrote some years back called Consciousness Explained, which I found inspirational. So I, I think it's, I think the hard, yes, you know, the hard problem of what, what is it? What is it? Where, you know, does the, is there a light somewhere that switches on is inside the brain? I think it's a problem that will be solved, but the human brain in particular is the most complex organism system in the universe. And although we've made great strides, neuroscientists, psychologists, philosophers, I think there's still a long way to go. But I'm optimistic that I see no reason why consciousness couldn't be A, understood and be replicated artificially. Can you please tell me whether information can travel faster than the speed of light in view of the spooky entanglement? Well, if Einstein's theory of special relativity is correct, and, and I believe it is, then the answer is no. Information can't travel faster than light. However, having said that, we still don't understand the spooky action, what, is what Einstein called quantum entanglement, that you can have two particles separated on either side of the universe, and yet somehow measuring one influences the properties of the other instantaneously. So there's some sort of quantum communication, mathematical link between them, but we can't use that to send signals faster than light. In my view, it's a copper. Most physicists will say, oh, yeah, but that, you know, that, that's not really, it's only, it's only abstract, it's only in the math, it's not really happening. I think that's an avenue where we still haven't quite understood the nature of the quantum world. And there may be more to understand. There's a, there's a wonderful new idea that's only come about in the Just last like few the years. Thing, yeah, yeah. So, so two American uh, theoretical physicists, Leonard Susskind and Mel DeSena, mm. have come up with the idea that Entangled particles may actually be joined by a quantum wormhole, uh, which is a shortcut outside of our dimensions. It sounds great for science fiction, but actually, digging into the maths and looking to what it means, it, there may be hope. So we can never send information faster than light, but we could, like, maybe we could use a shortcut outside of our universe. I mean, it is, it is, it is, worth, it is worth noting, uh, I heard two interesting things. One, one was that, First of all, you know, the, the speed of light is a limit, but right. there's this idea that you have tachyons. Just because it's a limit, it doesn't mean you can have something that always goes faster than it, supposedly. That's still allowed according to the rules of physics, right? It, it's, still, Potentially. It's, it's still allowed. Yeah. Well, the mathematics says there's, that yes. you can have a solution of Einstein's equations that have these particles that travel faster than light, but that also means they travel backwards in time. Yes, that's a bit of a problem. And, and as they lose energy, they speed up. <laughs> tachy, so you don't believe in tachyons? I, I don't. I don't think they're. I don't just just because they're they're allowed by the maths. Yeah. Again, doesn't mean that they sure. describe the real world. Mathematics is about describing all possible solutions, yes. all possible um, um, realities, but the physical universe may not. May, there, may, there, may there's not also there's that. also some notion about even though you know light can only travel up to the speed of light, obviously. 
actually shadows can travel faster than the speed of light. And so, for example, if you have a bug, you know, moving along a path projector, right. the, the screen behind it, the shadow of the bug, yeah. if it's far enough away, the shadow will actually appear to be moving faster than the speed of light. It will move, not spirit. Yes. It literally will move on the surface behind faster than the speed of yeah. light. Yeah. But that's not a violation. No, of, because uh, nothing it, physical is actually moving. That's right. It's just that you're seeing... Sure. So, but, so things can move faster than light, but yes, exactly. But it's still not information. It's not information. Thanks. Uh, do you think sometimes conversations about quantum physics can do physics a disservice just because of how, like some of the things you're saying, how unbelievable some of the, the things you're saying, like when they lose energy, it goes mm. faster or whatever. And, and some of the skeptics and people who aren't maybe as uh, physically literate as, as you and others who don't have a background in it and don't know how rigorous it is, will hear conversations like this and kind of dismiss the whole subject. For me, in communicating physics and in trying to sort of, you know, encourage and inspire people, there are different aspects of it. One is to try and get across how science works and the scientific method. When I say this is the way the world is, how did I come to that conclusion? Or how did physicists reach, reach that conclusion? So explaining how we learn by testing our ideas and dismissing those that don't work and doing experiments, that is important. That's, that persuades people that what we're doing isn't just fanciful ideas. But on the other hand, I think it, exciting people with some of the, 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 the mystery of physics, just getting them interested and inspired, I think there's no harm in, in, in pushing the more outlandish ideas in physics. Because I, you know, I think if, you, if all you ever did was, you know, at school, you know, ticker tapes and springs and batteries. And, and if that's all physics was, I'm not surprised people don't want to go into it. Mm -hmm. But, but to, to let people know that there are these mysteries that we're trying to tackle and, and, and solve that are far more fascinating than any of, you know, any pseudoscience, you know. It's, and, and it's real. And, and it's right? real, like, yes. Some, you know, some yeah. it's crazy. A lot of it powers are, you know, Gravity bending space-time is much more interesting than bending spoons. <laughs> so you know, and that's real. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned one actually, one of your one of your shows that it'd be great if people talk more about physics, you know, at the pub rather than discussing football. And and, and there's and there is a lot of cool Get, stuff getting to talk it into about, popular so, culture. Yes, you, you do an amazing job. Well, it's I mean, starting to happen now. Yeah. People are talking about the discovery of the Higgs boson, for example, or yeah, and everybody planets. being here today, right? Like, yeah, uh, it is amazing. Hi, um, following on from your discussion about the. Sorry. The relationship between philosophy and science, do you think scientific progress will eventually take away the need for philosophy altogether? I mean, like you said about um, we'll be able to solve mm. the problem of consciousness. Um, I don't think science is coming to an end anytime soon. And I don't agree with many of my physicist colleagues who have argued that philosophy is dead because physics is answering all the, uh, addressing all the important questions. I still think there's a huge role for philosophy to play in philosophy of science in particular, because it's helping us ask the right questions. Uh, philosophy comes up with the right questions that science then tries to answer. For science alone or physics alone to try and find out where to look and ask, to ask the right questions, I think we're going to fail. I think we will always need the help of philosophers to, to get us to think more clearly. Cool. So two last a, questions because uh, we've got we've got a red flashing light here with zeros in front of us. So two last questions. So could you please explain in simple terms the contradiction between the two great um, discoveries of the last century, namely quantum theory 
and relativity. Apparently, they're both completely accurate, but they contradict each other. It's very difficult for us to... Yeah. Well, they, I mean, very briefly, because we run out of time, they contradict each other because they rely on very different mathematics. Uh, the quantum mechanics tells us that the, the, the world is made of um, uh, elementary particles moving within space. Um, whereas relativity is about the, the, the structure of space and time themselves. Relativity is a, is a, a theory of, of, of geometry, of the shape of space-time, uh, but it doesn't have the, the discrete, discreteness of quantum mechanics. It's, it's not, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's analog, not, not binary, not digital. Uh, so, so the mathematics are very different. Uh, normally people talk about what well, quantum mechanics is, describes the very small, relativity describes the very large. That's not really the issue. The issue is that their, their mathematics are, are structured very differently. And so we don't know how to fit them together. Cool. So last question. Thank you. Uh, you made the case that uh, Stephen Hawking was wrong, that uh, we haven't reached the end of physics. But are we reaching the end of physics, physics as we can possibly know it in the sense that it's requiring increasing resources and technology to answer the next, and peel back the next layer of the onion? It's certainly true that, you know, uh, where we, the way we've come thus far by building larger and larger particle accelerators to, to, to smash particles together at ever higher energies, to probe deeper and deeper into sort of building blocks of, of, of matter. Yeah, we can't see how much larger an accelerator we can build. If you want to test uh, uh, whether particles are ultimately made of vibrating strings, is what superstring theory predicts, you need an accelerator the size of the Milky Way galaxy. And no one's going to fund that. Um, but, but, I, but I do think, I don't, I don't think that means that's the end. I think we're going to find, have to find more imaginative ways of testing some of our ideas. It doesn't have to be just by building things bigger and smashing them together harder and harder. There may be other aspects of reality that we can test using, for, for example, astronomy uh, and studying the nature of space and, and, and the, the, the universe at large might actually give us answers about the very small. So I think there is still plenty more uh, we can do. We just need to be more imaginative. Some of our mathematical theories may seem just like pretty maths at the moment, but that doesn't mean that we should give up on trying to find ways of testing them. I'm, I'm still optimistic about that. Cool. Well, on that note, uh... Let's thank Jim for, for being here today. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you.